Welcome to Onco Farm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I'm an associate professor here at the supporting sponsor of Onco Farm, the Bill Gatton College of Pharmacy. It is March 21st. 2019, the first day of what they call March Madness, the NCAA tournament. Uh, so, as soon as I'm done recording this, and I go pick up the kids, go watch the basketball for the rest of the day, including my beloved Boilermakers, about 10 o'clock Eastern tonight. But before we get into that, um, I do want to go over some updates from the week. Um, some compelling information came out uh, regarding Venetoclax, which is what I'm going to start with. So, on March 19th, uh, the FDA. Um, uh, and we know this from a drug, from a, a press release from the drug company that makes venetoclax. But, venet- but the FDA placed a hold on the enrollment of any new patients onto a clinical trial of venetoclax in combination with bortezomib and dexamethasone, or bortezomib, dexamethasone, placebo in multiple myeloma. Uh, and so this was an ongoing phase three randomized controlled trial called Bellini. Uh, and apparently they were randomized two to one from the press release. We know there are about 300 patients in the study, about just under 200 in the venetoclax arm and just under 100 in the placebo arm. And venetoclax is an oral BCL2 inhibitor. BCL2 is involved in programmed cell death. So by uh, upregulating BCL2 expression, cancers are able to evade programmed cell death uh, and then live longer. So venetoclax approved for CLL along with AML uh, and com- as part of a combination therapy, and there was a, a thought out there that this would be a drug used commonly in many, at least hematologic malignancies, if not other malignancies, and it was in the process, or it was being used off-label. I've seen it used off-label in other hematologic malignancies in patients who come back from tertiary cancer centers. So first of all, this is relevant for patients who may have been uh, considering going on a, a multiple myeloma clinical trial with venetoclax, or those uh, who are using it off-label, uh, because now we know there are concerns. And what are the concerns? Well, let's look closer uh, at the study. So, as I mentioned, this was a phase three study of relapsed or refractory multiple myeloma patients uh, with at least one to three prior lines of treatment. They were randomized to venetoclax, bortezomib, or dex, or just bortezomib and dex alone. Uh, And the reason uh, that patients can no longer be added to this study was an uh, unacceptably high death rate in the treatment arm. So um, the death rate was 21.1% in the venetoclax arm and 11.3% in the placebo arm. Uh, In the placebo arm of the 11.1% deaths, uh, one of those was what they considered a treatment emergent death. Um, Now, of the 21.3%, there were 13 deaths that were treated emergent, and eight of the 13 deaths were attributed to infection. So perhaps <clears throat> this has an unacceptably high rate of infection in these patients. Uh, so the study uh, is halted. Patients currently on the study can and on venetoclax, on venetoclax can continue benefiting from it if they already are. Um, so there would going to be, one, we want to see uh, the publication of this because there's some interesting findings here. Uh, the primary uh, efficacy endpoint here was progression-free survival, and the study met the primary progression endpoint according to, according to the press release from the drug company that makes venetoclax. So median progression-free survival was 22.4 months in the venetoclax, bortezomib, and dex group compared to 11.5 months, those not receiving uh, venetoclax. And that was a statistically significant finding. That's you know, almost a 12-month improvement in median progression-free survival. Now, again, um, I don't know what myeloma patients are not getting bortezomib dexamethasone as their first line of treatment, and they're all relapsed refractory, so they're 
likely getting drugs that they've already seen and progressed through. Um, so not a great comparator for progression-free survival. Let's say that first. Overall response rate was was better as well, 82% versus 68%. Again, the group that was getting uh, at least one new drug. But the grade 3 to 5 toxicity was 86.5% with Beneclax, 87.5%, so pretty similar. Uh, infection, 79.8 versus 77.1, pretty similar. Uh, more pneumonia, it appears, in the class group, 20.7% compared to 15.6%. So, uh, you know, is this an example of venetoclax causes more infections and it's uh, a potentially deadly infection? In fact, a higher death rate. And that is the reason uh, maybe the drug will not go forward uh, in practice uh, or in further development and is not ready to be used or should not be used. Perhaps there needs to be better infectious uh, supportive care, perhaps uh, prophylactic therapies, uh, prophylactic antibiotics or antimicrobials or growth factors, things we don't know yet that are going to be looked at, especially uh, if an anaclax is going to be beneficial, but does appear to have some added safety concerns. Um, which is, you know, this is why we do randomized controlled clinical trials to learn these things. Uh, now, multiple myeloma in particular seems to have a history with these kind of early safety signals. Uh, devout listeners of this podcast will know uh, that uh, some time back, denosumab was granted FDA approval f- to prevent skeletal related events for patients with multiple myeloma. That was after a previous safety flag revealed uh, an oddly high rate, uh, oddly high death rate in myeloma patients uh, compared to other patients with, with bone mets. Now, that was a very small number in the myeloma group, and that seemed to be just a skewed analysis, just chance, and that was uh, bore out later by subsequent evidence. Uh, more recently, in 2017, there were two multiple myeloma clinical trials that were halted because of an increased death rate in patients that were randomized to the pembrolizumab group. Um, so more to come on this, but certainly, if you're like where I practice as a, a, a secondary referral center, patients will get referred to a tertiary referral center and come back um, you know, usually looking for expert opinion or for a clinical trial. And sometimes what the experts recommend is to uh, utilize is an off-label fashion um, what they have available at clinical trial, but not on a clinical trial. And we could see what the danger of that would be now if patients would were to be placed on venetoclax for myeloma, at least until we get confirmatory studies showing that it is safe and effective. Speaking of safe and effective, which is uh, the bar for approval by the FDA on March 18th, uh, atizolizumab was approved by the FDA for extensive stage small cell lung cancer in conjunction with carboplatin antitoposide. Listeners of the podcast will know we had a podcast about this study going back uh, back probably in September when this study was published. This is Empower 133 in uh, September of 2018 in the New England Journal of Medicine. The title of that, I believe, was Current and Established Advances in Small Cell Lung Cancer because this is the first first drug in a very, very long time to show an improvement in overall survival. So you're looking at a median overall survival of 10.3 months in placebo compared to 12.3 in the atezolizumab group. Uh, The median progression-free survival was 4.3 versus 5.2 with atezolizumab. That 12-month progression-free survival is 5.4, although uh, more than doubling to 12.6 with atezolizumab at one year. Now, the way this study was done, uh, carboplatinitoposide times four cycles, or carboetoposide and atizolizumab for four cycles, followed by atizolizumab until disease progression or toxicity. Uh, in practice, 
the recommended treatment for extensive stage small cell lung cancer is four to six cycles of carboetoposide. So perhaps by not giving six cycles, uh, you know, the, the the placebo group did not get the full benefit they otherwise would have received. That's possible. I'll also point out here, uh, as I said before, that these overall survival curves uh, and progression-free survival curves are superimposed until after uh, three months, which would be the end of four cycles of carboetoposide. It is unfortunate that this study did not have an atizolizumab arm that was only given to patients after completing chemo or after having a response. Uh, that would have been lovely to see because it is possible, or perhaps not possible, we don't know, it is unknown whether or not atizolizumab's benefit here is because it's given concurrently with chemo or because it's given right away after the completion of chemo. This is a very, very important question to answer for reasons that are coming up in hospitals and pharmacy and therapeutics committees right now is whether or not atizolizumab should be added to formulary for the inpatient setting because uh, extensive stage small cell lung cancer patients are, I think, if we thought really hard, maybe we could come up with another solid tumor that is sicker than a patient with newly diagnosed extensive stage small cell lung cancer, but they are the sickest or about as sick of a patient you can encounter on a medical oncology service. Uh, it is not a conclusion that when you start chemo on somebody with extensive stage small cell in, a, in the inpatient setting that they will survive that first cycle of chemo. Therefore, when you're given a drug like atizolizumab uh, with cycle one as an inpatient, there are large financial concerns um, that, are, that have come out. So uh, if you are one of those people in a decision-making role about the use of drugs in an inpatient formulary, if the money is not a concern, you should do it the way the study did it, that is using atizolizumab uh, with cycle one all the way through. It is my personal opinion, and this is not evidence-based in any way, but it's my personal opinion that patients could probably skip that first cycle of atizolizumab assuming they do well and then can get the rest of their chemo sessions as an outpatient, uh, if they have to get inpatient chemo for cycle one, that atizolizumab, atizolizumab could be added in cycle two moving forward. Uh, but again, that's, a, that's an, a personal opinion, uh, and uh, I'm not sure that we're going to get more information on this topic, uh, at least not from a, a randomized controlled clinical trial. So if you are a hospital that does that uh, and decides not to allow atizolizumab use on an inpatient setting, and you have a lot of small cell lung cancer patients that uh, are not able, therefore, to get cycle one of atizolizumab, and they just get carboetoposide in the hospital, and then pick up atizolizumab thereafter. It'd be wonderful to see that data reported to see if that is, in fact, beneficial. And then finally, uh, the American Society of Clinical Oncology, or ASCO, endorsed guidelines from the Congress of Neurologic Surgeon Guidelines on a couple things. One is... Uh, the use of anticonvulsants in patients uh, with brain tumors. And they said basically they're endorsing that routine use of anticonvulsants is not recommended in patients who are seizure-free, something that can be seen um, from time to time. Certainly it's plausible for uh, you know, a prescriber to assume or think, oh, this patient has a, has a brain tumor. Uh, brain tumors can present as seizures. I should put this person on an anticonvulsant. And there is not good evidence that you should do that in the absence of a seizure. Patients who have a seizure because of their, their brain tumor should be put on anticonvulsants, but routinely they should not be used in patients who have not had a seizure. So the ASCO folks, uh, they formed a committee to endorse the guidelines from the Congress of Neurologic Surgeons, who I honestly was not aware was a group that produced guidelines. Um, and they also endorsed uh, the fact that steroids can be beneficial for mass effect for patients that have a brain tumor with mass effect and symptoms with dexamethasone being the best drug. 
what was interesting is they, they said that four milligrams is often sufficient, which is not something that I have seen in clinical practice or seen that data. I know there's a study that looks at you know, four milligrams every six hours of dexamethasone compared to a much higher dose, like 16 milligrams a day versus 96 milligrams a day, and there was no difference. So there's no reason that I can see to use more than 16 milligrams a day. But the guidelines do emphasize uh, whatever dose of dexamethasone you use for uh, a day, for BID, uh, maybe for four times a day, four milligrams every six hours, that you should try to use the smallest dose possible to control your symptoms because if not, uh, they'll leave the hospital on that high dose. They'll be a, on that high dose for a couple weeks before they follow up with a physician and they'll end up with thrush. They'll end up with severe uh, weakness from being on such a high dose of steroids for so long. Um, and then all the other um, corticosteroid side effects that you see in the short term. So those are the updates for the week that I found interesting, and I hope that you found them interesting too. Uh, thank you for listening. Uh, you can find the podcast on Stitcher, on uh, what else? On the, in the Google Music Store, on iTunes, where you can give us a five-star rating and a nice review. Tell us what you like about the podcast, what you'd like to hear more of. You can follow me at, on Twitter at FarmDecentNip. Follow the podcast at OncoFarmPod. And you can find me on uh, the gram, as the kids say, uh, at OncoFarmPod as well. And until I talk to you again, remember, doses always matter. Thank you.